Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers on your network. So go to expressvpn.com gold and get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. They had a big party today on Wall Street. All the major stock market indexes had big gains. The Dow Jones was up 535 points. That's a gain of 1.63%. But the gains were bigger in the S&P 500. That index was up 2.13%. Even bigger gains in the NASDAQ, up 2.7%. In fact, the biggest gainer of the day was the Russell 2000. That index was up just shy of 3%. But of course, the more speculative end of the risk spectrum was up even more. Look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation Fund. That was up 7.37%. Even Bitcoin had a big day. Looking at GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, it was up over 4%. Bitcoin actually peaked back above 24,000. It's a bit below now that I am recording this podcast. But while stocks went north, the dollar went south. Cross the board selling in the dollar, the dollar index closed down better than a point, 1.15 at 105 spot 22. In fact, the intraday low was 104 spot 363. That's the first time the dollar index has traded below 105 in this decline. Now, we didn't close below it. And if you've been listening to this podcast, I've been saying we need to close below 105 in order for me to be more confident that the dollar has seen its highs. I still think it has, but I'm not completely convinced. In order to have more conviction in that call, 
I want to see the dollar close below 105, not just trade below 105 on an intraday basis. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. The reason for this big celebration was the release of the July Consumer Price Index. And the good news was that the bad news was not nearly as bad as people expected. So the expectation for the month of July was that consumer prices would rise by two-tenths of a percent. Now that is a small rise compared to the 1.3% increase in the prior month. And the reason everybody was convinced that it would be a small number for July was that we had had a big drop in gasoline prices at the pump. We had a drop in oil prices, but an even bigger drop in gas prices. And so that also bled into other parts of consumer prices where energy is a big part. So there was some relief there. And in fact, the number came out lower than expected. It came out at zero. So no change. Now, the range of expectations went from zero to 0.4. So the zero was not outside the realm of expectations. It was just on the low end of that range and a little bit lower than what had been expected. And so as soon as that news story hit, you had a big rally on Wall Street. In fact, fueling the rally was not just that the monthly gain in the headline was smaller than expected, but so too was the gain in core. The core CPI, which again is the CPI excluding the real important stuff, food and energy, that was supposed to rise by 0.5. Instead, it only rose by 0.3. And here, that was actually below the range of estimates, which went from a low of 0.4 to a high of 0.7, which if reached would have matched the 0.7% gain in the prior month. So this was better than expected. And also the year-over-year numbers were better than expected. Remember, Last month, the year-over-year number on the headline was 9.1%, and that was the highest we've been since 1981 or something like that. So that was the worst so far. And the expectation was for that to decline to 8.7. Instead, it declined to 8.5. Again, that was the low end of estimates, which went from 8.5 to 9.1. The same thing with the core. The core was supposed to rise to 6.1% beating the 5.9% from the prior month. Instead, we came at up 5.9% matching the prior month below what had been anticipated, but again, not below the range of forecasts because we went from plus 5.9 to plus 6.2. So we came out on the low end, but not beneath it. But in any event, this was music to the ears of traders. I think there were a lot of trading algorithms that were set to buy if you had an inflation number that came out lower than expected. Had it been the reverse, had the numbers been higher than expected, I think those programs would have sold and we would have seen a different reaction. In fact, the most ridiculous reaction, and it may have also been the most insulting, was President Biden. Because during some type of press conference today, he specifically bragged about the fact that there was no inflation during the month of July. He kept talking about zero. There was zero inflation in the month of July. Well, the only zero describes Joe Biden's lack of understanding of the U.S. economy. 
He has no understanding. I thought about saying maybe his IQ, but obviously he has an IQ a lot greater than zero. Although how much greater, I don't really know. But he has zero understanding of inflation in particular, but probably economics in general. But he was really bragging about this success. Zero inflation. Well, first of all, year over year, prices are still up 8.5%. And of course, we know they're up a lot more than that because we know that these numbers understate the actual increase in prices. But who cares? So what if prices didn't go up in one month? They went up so much in the months before. It's not like prices went down in July. They just didn't go up again. So we have really high prices that are a big problem. And those really high prices are still here in July. Did they get higher? Well, no, but they didn't go down. So if you were struggling with high prices in June, you were still struggling with those high prices in July. You didn't get any relief. It's just that your burden didn't get any greater. But it's only one month. And again, it's because we had a big drop in gas prices. That can easily be reversed. The prices are very volatile. They're not going to go up in a straight line. There's going to be an ebb and flow. And so the next time we flow, we could end up a lot higher. Meanwhile, a lot of other costs, food costs, rents, they keep going up. So yes, we were able to offset those increases with a cheaper gasoline for one month. But so what? You can't just cherry pick an individual month and say, aha, we had no inflation during the month of July and somehow claim that the inflation problem has been solved. It hasn't been solved. And by the way, a lot of people are now calling for peak inflation because inflation was 9.1% year over year and now it's only 8.5%. And so we've seen the peak. How many peaks did people see in inflation in 2021? Almost every time inflation went up, it was a new peak. And whenever we had a slight relief where we had a month where inflation was less than the month before, then all the peak inflationers came out in force. Aha, this is proof that we've had peak inflation. And I kept saying at that time that we're nowhere near the peak. And of course, I was right because 9.1% came out last month. Well, now the same people who were talking about peak inflation every other month in 2021 and probably early in 2022, they're now singing the same song again today, but they're still singing off key. They're wrong. We have not peaked. Now, even I conceded after the print in July that we could see a bit of a decline in the next few months where the year-over-year inflation rate would not be as high and some of these big monthly increases may not be as large and that is exactly what happened. But that does not mean that the problem is over. But as far as the traders are concerned, what this does mean is that the Federal Reserve is not going to have to be as aggressive in raising rates because the inflation problem is solving itself or maybe it's already been solved based on the rate hikes to date and the fact that consumer prices didn't go up at all during the month of July, well, that is supposedly evidence that the Fed can take a victory lap and that it's been successful. But again, one month does not a success make. This means nothing. There is still so much inflation already in the pipeline. We have barely begun to see the consequences. But that didn't stop the partiers on Wall Street from buying stocks. In fact, initially, when the 
lower than expected inflation news came out, there was a big rally in gold. Gold went from down a couple of bucks to up maybe 12, 13 bucks. Gold traded as high as about 1807, and that's the highest it's been since it broke below 1800. In fact, it broke below 1700. So this was a new high, but we then got some profit taking in gold and it ended down about a buck and a half or so on the day. Silver still managed to eke out a small nine cent gain, eight cents, something like that. But the reason that you got this paradoxic rise in gold on the news that there wasn't as much inflation as people thought again, goes down to the expectations of Fed monetary policy. Gold is trading off of what investors think the Fed is going to do with interest rates. If it's going to hike interest rates more, that's supposedly bad for gold. If it's going to hike them less, that's good for gold. I mean, if it's going to cut them, it's even better. But in reality, if there's not as much inflation as people thought, that should be bad for gold because there's less reason to buy gold as an inflation hedge. If there's more inflation than people thought, then there's more reason to buy gold. But the markets don't understand that yet because the markets are still of the opinion that the Fed is going to be successful in its battle against inflation. That's why high inflation or higher inflation than is expected is bad news because it just means that the Fed is going to have to fight harder to win. They're going to have to jack up interest rates even more and that's going to be bad for gold. On the other hand, if inflation isn't as bad, then they don't have to fight as hard to beat it. And supposedly that's good for gold. So investors have it backwards. They just don't understand what is going on. Now, one of the reasons that we probably got some selling into the gold rally was profit taking, number one, because we've had a pretty big rally. And so people probably wanted to sell into the news and take some profits. But I also think the fact that you had the Dow Jones up 500 points got people excited. If stocks are going to do great, if inflation is coming down, why own gold? I mean, you buy gold when you're worried about stuff, whether it's geopolitical risk, whether it's inflation. Well, we've got nothing to worry about. We're going to have this new bull market. Everything is awesome. That's what the traders were thinking. And so in an everything is awesome world, why would you want to buy gold? When gold is basically a put on things going bad, who needs a put when everything's going great. You just want to buy a call, so you want to get all these risk-on assets, and that's what everybody was loading up on. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But again, what investors still don't understand is the economy is weakening. We're in recession, whether you want to acknowledge that or not. The recession is going to get worse, but so will inflation. Even if it temporarily gets better before it gets worse, it's still going to get worse. And recession is going to be a factor in making it worse. Most people think if the Fed fails at winning its war against inflation and instead pushes the economy into recession, the recession will pick up where the Fed left off. 
The recession will fight the Fed's battle and win. The markets are wrong. I mean, they are right to think the Fed's rate hikes will push the economy into recession. In fact, it already is in recession and it's going to be deeper in recession as a result of additional rate hikes. But they're wrong to assume that that recession is going to bring down inflation. It won't. It's going to fuel the inflation fire because the recession is going to mean less output of goods, but it's going to mean more demand because how is the Fed going to fight recession? How is it going to try to restore lost jobs? By creating inflation. They'll call it quantitative easing, but we know what it is. It's inflation. And they'll either call off the rate hikes or cut interest rates. But at a time when inflation is now accelerating, and so real interest rates are collapsing, and that is going to be the perfect storm for even higher inflation. Remember, I was one of the few people back in March of 2020 who said that we had a toxic mix of monetary and fiscal policy that was a perfect storm for inflation. Everybody else was talking about COVID-19 and why it was deflationary because they were focusing on less demand because they thought people were staying at home and they weren't traveling and doing stuff. I knew that even though they were staying at home, they were still spending a bunch of money. They were just spending it on different stuff. But what I also knew is that they weren't making stuff. They were at home spending government checks And those government checks, in some cases, were double or triple the checks that they got from their employers. But when people were paid by employers, they were paid for helping to produce goods and provide services. When they got paid by the government, they got paid for doing nothing. So they didn't help produce goods and services, but they had all sorts of money to go out and buy those goods and services that they didn't produce. And that's why prices soared. Most people didn't connect those dots back then, and nor are they connecting the dots right now to understand why the next recession is going to be extremely inflationary. In prior recessions, the Fed was able to get away with quantitative easing and artificially low interest rates because inflation was below 2%. And they had the leeway to claim that we had this room because we needed inflation to hit our target. And so because inflation was 1.5%, And the risk was that the economy could slip into that dreaded deflation in order to provide a buffer and to guard against the horrors of a declining cost of living. Well, that justified the QE and 0% interest rates. But what will the Fed use to justify slashing rates again and going to QE5 if inflation is still well above its 2% target? Even if it's not 9%, what if it's 5%? How do you justify pouring gasoline on that inflation fire when it's still burning extra hot? You can't. And I think when the markets are confronted with that reality, well, it's a game changer. The dollar tanks goes through the floor, gold goes through the roof, because people will now realize that the Fed can never fight inflation. They will realize that the balance sheet is never going to shrink. If the $9 trillion balance sheet doesn't even shrink as much as that $4.5 trillion balance sheet shrunk. And then all of a sudden, the balance sheet explodes above $10 trillion. Nobody is going to believe that the Fed is ever going to make a serious dent in that balance sheet, that it's going to grow in perpetuity to infinity and beyond. And if the Fed has to stop raising interest rates or actually has to start cutting interest rates, 
back down to zero in the face of inflation that is well north of its so-called 2% target, then investors will realize that the Federal Reserve will never be able to normalize interest rates, that negative interest rates are here to stay. And again, that's a game changer, especially for the bond market, which means it's also a game changer in the foreign currency markets and the precious metals market. Using the internet without using ExpressVPN is like walking your dog in public without a leash. Sure, most of the time you may be just fine, but what if one day your dog runs away and gets hit by a car? It's better to be safe than sorry, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. Every time you connect to an unsecured network in cafes, hotels, airports, etc., your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. But ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so they can't get access. It would take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. ExpressVPN works on all your devices, phones, laptop, tablets, even on your smart TV. And it's so easy to use, just fire up the app and click on one button and you're protected. It's time to put a layer of protection between your device and the internet so hackers can't steal your data. That's why I use ExpressVPN. So go to expressvpn.com gold to learn more. What I like best about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use and because I'm living in Puerto Rico I get an extra benefit because a lot of content that's available to residents of the United States is not available to residents of Puerto Rico and so the only way I can get access to these sites or enjoy their content is by using ExpressVPN because that way the websites don't realize I'm in Puerto Rico they think I'm in Florida and because you're listening to my podcast you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free at expressvpn.com slash gold. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. But while everybody was celebrating the supposed good news on inflation today, nobody was crying over the bad news that we got on inflation yesterday. And I think yesterday's bad news was worse than today's supposed good news. I'm talking about the productivity and cost numbers that came out for the second quarter. Now, this is the preliminary forecast. It will be revised, but these are the preliminary numbers. Now, the number for the first quarter, the last look we got was minus 7.3%. That was an awful number. It was probably one of the worst productivity numbers ever. Maybe the worst of my lifetime. I forget exactly how far back you have to go to find a quarter where productivity collapsed by that big a number. And that number was actually revised higher. It's now 7.4%. So it's even worse. The forecast was for productivity to fall by 4.5% in the second quarter. Now that's a bad number. I mean, maybe if you compare it to the horrific number from the month before, it doesn't look as bad. But just on its own, it is a very bad number. And the actual number came out even worse, minus 4.6%. Now, on a year-over-year basis, productivity dropped by 2.5%. Now, believe it or not, that is the largest drop in this series since they started keeping the data back in 1948. So that's certainly beyond my lifetime. You're almost going back 
to the Second World War. You're going back to before the Korean War to see a year-over-year drop in productivity as high as 2.5%. And we're going to set a new record because I think as we get more negative numbers, that year-over-year number has no place to go but up. Now, I'm sure that even though we weren't keeping records before 1948, that we probably never had a year in the history of the country. Going back to George Washington, where we saw productivity dropping this much because productivity was always going up. That's why the American standard of living was always going up. That's why America became the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. That's how we built the middle class, something that never existed outside the United States until we created it. But the reason Americans became so rich was because they became so productive. And why did Americans become so productive? Because of free market capitalism. What makes labor productive? Tools. Labor isn't productive so much on its own. It's when you have a tool. Let's say you've got a guy who is digging a ditch by hand. You give that guy a shovel and he can dig a much bigger ditch a lot faster. Now give him an excavator and his productivity goes through the roof. But where does the excavator come from? It comes from capital investment. It comes from the entrepreneur saving money or borrowing money that somebody else has saved to invest in a machine to make labor more productive. And when you're digging a ditch with an excavator, you can get paid a lot more money to operate that machine than you can be paid when you're digging a ditch with your hand or even at a shovel. So it's the increased capital that makes workers more productive and it's their increased productivity that allows for an increase in wages. And of course, the reason that people can earn more is because they produce more. When they produce more, they can buy more. So it's a virtuous cycle that is the byproduct of free market capitalism. But what we have now is collapsing productivity. People are not as productive and therefore prices have to go up because people are working, but they're not producing as much as they were before. And one of the reasons that productivity is collapsing is because unit labor costs are exploding. Now, a lot of people might think, well, that's good news, right? Labor costs means labor. Well, no, some of unit labor costs are wages, but there are a lot of other costs that employers incur when they hire somebody that don't go to the worker and benefit from those higher labor costs if he doesn't get the money. If the money goes to the government, if the money goes to an insurance company or someplace else, that doesn't help the worker, but it hurts the person or company that employs that worker. Now, unit labor costs increased on an annualized rate of 12.6% in the first quarter. That was revised up to 12.7%. The expectation was that unit labor costs were going to rise at an annualized rate of 9.3% in the second quarter, and instead they rose by 10.8%. So not as big a gain as the prior quarter, but a larger gain than had been expected. In fact, we were slightly above the high end of the range. The low end was up 6.7%. The high end was up 10.7% and we were up 10.8%. So this is bad news. If you're hoping for lower prices, this throws cold water on those hopes. If you're hoping for increases in real wages, again, those hopes are dashed 
by these numbers because nominal wage increases mean nothing. The only thing that can actually increase wages is higher productivity. That's one of the reasons that the minimum wage doesn't work because you can't mandate higher wages because you need higher productivity and the government can't mandate that. In fact, almost everything the government does undermines productivity. The government makes the nation less productive. Companies have to spend a lot of money on expensive rules and regulations. They have to pay a lot of taxes and that's money they can't invest in making workers more productive. And so because government is bigger, workers are less productive and therefore they earn less in real terms regardless of what's going on with nominal wages. Oh, and by the way, I might as well point this out. One of the reasons that the unemployment rate is low, apart from the fact that the government lies about it, but the minimum wage has seen a sharp decrease. It's still $7.25 an hour. It hasn't been raised, despite the fact that inflation has eviscerated its value. Now, there are 30 states that have minimum wages that exceed the federal minimum. And most of those states have been increasing their minimum wage. But that means there are still 20 states that don't impose a minimum wage. And so the minimum wage, in effect, is $7.25. And obviously, paying somebody $7.25 an hour today is a much better deal than paying somebody $7.25 an hour a year or two ago. And so what's happening is the minimum wage is going down. And so that means demand for low-skilled workers is going up because the price of hiring them is going down. Remember, the minimum wage is a barrier to employment. And the higher the minimum wage, the greater that barrier. But as the minimum wage comes down, so too does the barrier. And it is coming down. Inflation reduces the minimum wage. And that's creating employment. That is one of the reasons that some people think there is a trade-off between inflation and unemployment. The only trade-off is inflation lowers the minimum wage. It's the minimum wage that creates a lot of unemployment. And so if inflation is what brings about a reduction in the minimum wage, then it helps create jobs. But it's not the inflation that's creating the jobs. It is the reduction in the minimum wage. Now, of course, if we eliminated the minimum wage completely, that is the best thing. But obviously, if inflation continues at the pace that it's on, the minimum wage is going to be so low that it's not going to be a problem in most states. Now, of course, these 30 states that are shooting themselves in the foot, they keep raising their minimum wage, and so they're going to have a problem. And by the way, the federal minimum wage is unconstitutional, and I object to it for that reason. There is nothing in the Constitution that enables the U.S. government to set a minimum wage. The Commerce Clause was used by the courts to validate this, but it is an abuse of that clause. The Commerce Clause does not apply here, so it is unconstitutional, but it's also bad economics. But when the states do it, well, it's not unconstitutional. The states can do whatever they want. It's still bad economics, but at least it's legal. And I think so long as we don't get a big increase in the federal minimum wage, I think a lot of people, low-skilled workers, will be moving out of the 30 states that impose a very high minimum wage, and they'll be able to move into the states that have a low minimum wage because those are the states that are going to have the most employment opportunities for low-skilled people. And of course, when you're low-skilled, you need employment opportunities because you have to get skills, and there's no better way to get skills than on the job. You need to get your first job before you get your second job. You need your second job before you get your third job. And as you get more and more jobs, you get higher and higher pay. In fact, 
you don't have to change employers to get higher pay. Somebody hires you, you got no skills, you're going to acquire skills on the job. The minute your boss teaches you something, you automatically become more valuable to that boss. And he has to give you a raise. Otherwise, you're going to take the knowledge that you gained on the job and go to one of his competitors. So your boss might not want to give you a raise, but he's going to have to give you a raise. But you're not going to get that raise if you don't get the job in the first place. And many people never get the job in the first place because of the minimum wage. But circling back to the news on collapsing productivity, that's really the inflation story. We have a less productive nation and we have the government spending a lot of money. Now they're going to spend even more money with this ridiculous Inflation Reduction Act, which I already talked about is going to add massively to the deficit. It is a spending bill and spending is what fuels the inflation fire. It's not what puts it out What we need is a reduction in government spending if we want to fight inflation. We don't need more government spending when government spending monetized by the Federal Reserve is the source of the inflation we're now suffering from. Yes, the politicians know that the American public doesn't like inflation, and so they know they can pass a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act, and everybody can brag about how they voted to reduce inflation, even though what they actually voted to do was make the inflation problem that everybody is already suffering with worse. But actually, the worst part of the Inflation Reduction Act is not necessarily just the government spending that's going to add to inflation. It is the addition of 87,000 new IRS agents. That's really going to make Americans miserable. Why does the IRS need another 87,000 more agents That more than doubles the size of the Internal Revenue Service? Why is anybody happy about the Internal Revenue Service, an agency that basically everybody despises, now it's going to double in size? As a result of this hiring spree, the IRS will soon employ more people than the Pentagon, the State Department, the FBI, and the Border Patrol combined. And they're not employing this army of IRS agents to go after billionaires. I mean, there's not even a thousand billionaires in the entire country. I don't know, maybe there's 800 or something like that. We don't need 78,000 new IRS agents to go after a few hundred billionaires. In fact, I'm sure those billionaires already have their own personal IRS agent assigned to their case. Maybe they got one or two. Now, obviously, there's more than 78,000 millionaires But the millionaires are not going to be the targets. Why does the IRS want all these agents? They want to go after the underground economy. They want to get all the unreported cash income. They want to go after people who inflate their deductions. Who are they? They're not the billionaires or even the millionaires. Billionaires don't have to cheat on their taxes. They can lower their taxes legally using the tax code. In fact, the irony of the Inflation Reduction Act is that it originally had a provision to substantially limit the carried interest deduction. Who benefits from the carried interest deduction? Billionaires, millionaires, hedge fund and private equity managers. How many middle class people are managing private equity funds? I don't think there's any. How many middle class hedge funds are out there? They don't exist. These are very rich people 
who benefit from the carried interest deduction, and they are effectively able to cut their income tax in half. Because instead of paying 40% tax, they're paying closer to 20% tax because they're treating their income as if it were capital gains. But it's not capital gains. Capital gains is when you take a risk. You make an investment, you might lose money, and then you gain money. You buy something, you invest in something, and you sell later on, and there's a gain. Carried interest is not a tax on any risk-taking. Hedge funds manage other people's money just the way I manage other people's money. I do it for a fee. Hedge fund managers do it for a percentage of the profits. Now, they get a fee too, right? They charge 2 and 20. That's 2% to manage your portfolio, and then they take 20% of the profits for managing your portfolio. They pay an ordinary income tax on the 2%, but they pay long-term capital gains tax on the 20%. But why? They're earning that 20% as compensation for managing somebody else's money. It's earnings. They're not putting their own money at risk. Now, sure, a lot of hedge funds invest in their own funds. And to the extent that I'm a hedge fund manager, and let's say I invest $10 million of my own money in my fund, and I get a capital gain as a shareholder, sure, that's long-term capital gain. But let's say I have no money invested in the fund, and I'm just managing other people's money, and as a result of managing other people's money, I get paid $10 million or $100 million. Why should I get long-term capital gains on that? It's not a capital gain. I did work, and I got paid. Now, I'm against the income tax. I don't think we should have any income tax at all. But if we're going to have an income tax, we should treat all income the same. If somebody is a hedge fund manager and they get paid for managing other people's money, they shouldn't have a lower tax rate than a truck driver. Why? They should have the same tax rate at a minimum. Now, I don't believe in this whole graduated income tax either. I think we should have a flat rate where everybody pays the same. But what makes no sense is to have middle class people paying higher taxes on their income then wealthy people pay on theirs. And also, I think all wealthy people should be treated the same. If some wealthy people earn their money during one thing, they shouldn't be taxed higher than people who earn it doing something else. Now, for example, a lot of people manage money just for a fee. They don't get a percentage of the profits. Well, why should they be taxed at a higher rate than the people who also get compensated with a percentage of the profits? They shouldn't, right? This is unfair it should have been changed, but they stripped it out of the bill. It was in there. So while they're hiring 87,000 more IRS agents to shake down the middle class, they specifically removed a provision that would have shaken down the billionaires and the millionaires. Now, why do I think this is going to be a shakedown of the middle class? Well, that's where the money is. Who do you think has got cash income that's not being reported? Billionaires aren't being paid in cash. It's average people that have maybe a side hustle. They're getting paid on Venmo for some work that they did and they didn't pay taxes on it, right? All these gig workers who are getting cash. You've got a lot of self-employed people that have businesses where they get cash. And of course, a lot of these self-employed people, these are not rich people. They're running a small business. Maybe the guy's running a car wash. Well, some people get their car washed and they pay in cash. Well, maybe the owner doesn't declare that cash. He just puts it in his pocket. Nobody knows about it. Also, what happens is a lot of small business owners end up putting a lot of their personal expenses onto their business. And that way they get to deduct it. It's not legal, but they do it. Now, I'm not condoning 
the tax evasion. All I'm saying is that it happens. You know, there's an old saying that the income tax created more cheaters than golf. Well, there are a lot of cheaters, but they're not the billionaires. Again, they don't have to cheat. They've got a tax code that was written to help them avoid these high taxes if they do it the right way. But middle-class workers, self-employed small business owners, they can't afford all those lawyers. They don't qualify for all these special breaks. They're stuck with these high taxes. And I certainly feel sorry for a lot of people that are forced to cheat on their taxes because if they honestly paid their taxes, they couldn't pay their rent. They couldn't buy groceries. So in order to get by, you have a lot of middle-class people, even lower middle-class people, who are not paying what the IRS claims they owe, but they're getting away with it because the IRS isn't going to audit all of these small taxpayers. They don't have enough workers. At least they didn't have enough workers, but with 87,000 more IRS agents on the job out to prove themselves, well, now they're going to have the manpower that they need. So I think this is really going to up the pain on a lot of American families that are struggling to get by. And but for cheating on their taxes, they wouldn't be getting by. Now they've got a lot to worry about with these 87,000 IRS agents. In fact, according to the IRS, they're expecting to extract an extra 200 billion from people based on having more audits. Well, where's this 200 billion gonna come from? It's not just gonna be taxes because when the IRS catches you and let's say you cheated on your taxes and you underreported your income or you exaggerated your deductions, you said you gave a certain amount to charity and you didn't remember all the underwear that the Clintons deducted, they gave some underwear to charity. It was probably some bogus number. Well, a lot of people, they give something to charity and they overstate what they claim it's worth. You know, used clothes, I mean, are worth hardly anything, but people put a big value on it. No one cares. Nobody questions it. It's not enough money. And so people feel comfortable. But with all these extra agents out there, a lot of people who have been getting away with this, they're not going to get away with it. But when the IRS catches you, it's not just the back taxes, it's the interest and the penalties that you end up paying, which can easily exceed the taxes that you didn't pay by a great amount. And so if people were cheating on their taxes by necessity because they couldn't afford their taxes, how are they gonna afford to now pay those taxes plus interest and penalties. And of course, a lot of people, they're gonna pay the interest and penalties because it's better than the alternative, which is a criminal charge, right? Because if you deliberately evade your taxes, if you lie on your tax return, you sign that thing under penalty of perjury, and then the IRS agent says, wait a minute, you said you had 75,000 in income, but you actually had 85,000. You didn't report this 10,000 in cash that we've now figured out that you earned you committed tax evasion. That's a felony. You can go to jail. But instead of sending you to jail, we're just going to make you pay all these taxes, interest, and penalties. So sign here. And if you don't have the money, well, we're going to put you on some kind of payment plan. But now, if you've got all these American families that are now stuck with these huge tax bills with interest and penalties that they now have to pay, how are they going to get by? Because they're still struggling with higher food bills, higher energy bills. So this is really going to create a problem. Of course, every Democrat in the U.S. Senate 
voted in favor of this. Supposedly, the Democrats are the champion of the little guy. Well, why are they sicking the IRS on the little guy? Now, they all claim that this is for the millionaires and billionaires, but we know it's not. You don't need all these IRS agents to go after a handful of billionaires and however many millionaires there are, they're going after the middle class. In fact, there's an old quote from the infamous bank robber, Willie Sutton. I've used this before, but it's so appropriate again here. Willie Sutton was asked by a reporter, why do you rob banks? And his answer, because that's where the money is. Duh. Well, why do you audit the middle class? Why do you audit the self-employed, small business owners, gig workers, people with side hustles? Because that is where the money is. And that is where the IRS is going to go. It doesn't matter what the Democrats want to pretend. They know where this $200 billion is coming from. And it's not from the billionaires and the millionaires. It's from their own constituents, or at least the people they pretend are their constituents, But I pointed this out from the beginning. I warned about this early on a couple of years ago when you had Elizabeth Warren and everybody talking about how we need to expand the IRS to go after the tax cheats. I knew at the time that the tax cheats that they were going to go after were ordinary Americans, middle-class Americans. They didn't have the guts to say it, but I knew that's what they were going to do. Again, it's the same thing they did with the income tax. When they first passed the income tax constitutional amendment back in 1913, what did the politicians say? We're going after the millionaires. We're going after the billionaires, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Mellons, the Morgans. That's who we're going to tax. In fact, the politicians of the day said if we can only get this income tax on the super rich, we'll be able to lower taxes on everybody else. We're going to trade the income tax for tariffs because everybody knew that the middle class paid tariffs. And so what the government said is, hey, if we have this tax on the rich, we won't need tariffs anymore and we can eliminate the tariffs. See, that's something that Trump didn't understand. He was talking about putting on tariffs. Tariffs are paid by the middle class. They're not paid by the Chinese. They're paid by the Americans who buy goods that are subject to tariffs. Well, at least the Americans back in 1913 understood that. Maybe because Americans didn't spend nearly as much time in school back then. Most people didn't even graduate high school, let alone get advanced degrees from college. So Americans were much less educated in 1913, but they were a lot smarter. And so they knew who paid tariffs, but they weren't smart enough not to fall for the government's promise to soak the rich. Because within a few years of the income tax being passed, all of a sudden, everybody started paying it, especially when World War II started and we got the victory tax and all sorts of middle-class Americans for the first time started paying an income tax that was supposedly just for the super rich. Now it became the mainstay and probably the bane of many Americans' existence. Well, now the same thing is happening again with these IRS agents. It's a bait and switch. The Democrats promise that these IRS agents are there to shake down the rich, but once they're on the job, it's the middle class who are not only going to get the shakedown, but the shaft. 